0: real conversations and some hard truths, gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs, and guns, guns. giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught, protect, and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romus with you. And because everybody's been asking for it, today we have the chief of police for the Edmonton Police, Dale McPhee on the program. Chief McPhee completed 26 years with the Prince Albert Police Service in the province of Saskatchewan, of which he spent nine years as the chief of police. He's done some association work and was at one point the president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. Chief McPhee McPhee then spent six years as the deputy minister of corrections and policing for the government of Saskatchewan before moving to the position he currently holds as Chief of Police here in Edmonton since 2019. He's also managed small and uh, mid-sized businesses and lectured on leadership and change management to both private and public sector organizations. And he was formerly the president with the Western Hockey League's Prince Albert Raiders. He's been to a lot of places, so welcome, Chief. Thanks, Nathan, it's great to be with you. so, we kind of usually start with people the first time they're on the program. Talk a bit about themselves. So, can you tell us where you grew up?
1: Yeah, you bet. Uh, so, I mean, I was born in uh, a little, uh, well, in Winnipeg, but I grew up in a little town, Manitoba, and then moved to St. Albert about uh, 14. And uh, obviously, had my adolescent uh, junior high slash high school years in St. Albert. Went away to play hockey in Prince Albert. Uh, you know, uh, things seemed to work out with me there uh, Actually, was in the hockey field. I probably was actually close to actually signing an NHL contract before I broke my collarbone. But Mm. uh, I actually uh, went and joined the Prince Albert Police Service, um, and uh, actually took some time off. Had to get time off to go to pro camp, so it was kind of uh, different that way. And uh, that was kind of my growing up years. um, Certainly now, and fast forward, I've been pretty fortunate to be pretty much all over the world, and some of the jobs that I've had to speak on various different things. And, you know, I think probably first and foremost, as we all talk about as cops is family first. I've got a, a, a wife of, uh, I guess if I don't get this right, I wouldn't be good of 33 years and uh, three daughters. Uh, my oldest is a teacher. Um, you know, she actually just actually got her master's as well at Notre Dame and uh, down south the border. And, uh, and I've got a middle daughter who's an engineer and I got my youngest uh, just actually uh, had a biology degree and just got a nursing degree. So I has got a job at the U of A. So, you know, it's been pretty fortunate. I've been involved in a lot of things, right, as you mentioned, from sports at a, at a young age and had some success in that. And watching coaching my kids uh, at a very high level, I'll play university soccer and uh from a career aspect, I've always said it's uh, its not really what you do. It's how many people you can develop. And uh, I've been pretty fortunate to work with a lot of good people and uh, through the various jobs and roles I had, including some in the private sector. And, yeah, that's kind of a little bit of a nutshell of who I am and, uh, you know, pretty humbled actually to be here uh, at the end of the police service with so many great men and women as well.
0: So, well, let's go way back, though, and just talk about being a kid.
1: Oh. <laughs> what... Uh what kind of kid were you were you doing good in school and yeah i did all right like uh, probably most of us do uh, the school was one of those things that uh, i didn't find too hard uh always uh, you know and then got into the high school years and some of that we had to do uh on a bus as well playing hockey so uh, mm-hmm. uh it was more on the athletic field um just played several sports including football at a you know at a junior high age and, uh, played lots of baseball, actually, uh, played baseball and, uh, at a, at a young age at, uh, Little League World Championships, uh, out of team in Manitoba, And, uh, oh, really? so we went there and uh, toured around. And, uh, so I played ball at a long age and I also came back, played some fastball, managed to go to a lot of Canadian and Western Canadian championships. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's always been something that, uh, Try to do the things you enjoy, and you, hopefully you get good enough that, uh, you know, open some doors for you.
0: What well, pushed you into hockey the most?
1: You know, probably just love to play the game. My dad and uh, mom, and my mom would take me, a, growing up, I think at one time I played for five teams. I was in a small uh, town in, in Gros Isle just outside Manitoba. So, mm-hmm. you had to travel and uh, just couldn't get enough of it. Uh, so... You know, and as I grew up, it, uh, you got not bad at it. I mean, there was obviously a lot better, but uh, I had, uh, you know, as a kid, I had uh, had a really good life with hockey. I mean, I had some troubles. I was the only kid, so my, you know, uh, growing up wasn't always easy. Mm-hmm. Some certainly like well, all of us, we have some family difficulties, but uh, I think uh, that sports was the thing that probably kind of led me down the path to, to where I am today.
0: You speak of gross isle. I grew up for a few years in Warren, Manitoba, just down the road. No way. So, and I remember (laughs) actually, so I was in elementary school there for a few years. And uh, I remember the hockey arena there. They had a huge rivalry rivalry with Stonewall, Manitoba. And there would be massive fights after the hockey games, including coaches and including parents.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're up there, buddy. Hey, you don't have to tell me that uh, yeah. that was a long yeah, tradition. Yet. Yeah. Warren and Stonewall, obviously, only about seven, eight miles apart, and Ingrass Isle, only a few miles from Warren. So, yeah. But I, played I played both those centers.
0: Yeah, I play ball. Like it, it's a little circuit in there, right? You play yeah. all the inner lakes. Yeah. So,
1: it's um, pretty big
0: there now, actually.
1: I got yeah. a lot of uh, nephews and stuff that play down there.
0: So, did you have any family uh, in policing or any kind of prior service at military? Cousins. cousins, uh,
1: cousins in policing, a uh, couple of them uh, with the Winnipeg Police Service. Uh, okay, you know, obviously grew up as in hockey and stuff. Uh, there's a lot of uh, affiliation with police services, certainly in the Western Hockey You Had people coming in to talk to us as they have for many years, uh, which was also good. So, uh, just had a f- fond recollection. I think the things that resonated with me in those talks were it's something to do that you could do different every day, you'd never do what was that tomorrow was going to bring, and uh it was a really good chance to, to work with your community. So those are mm-hmm. some of the things that stuck with me.
0: Yeah. So um, if I'm remembering the path you took here correctly, so you went from hockey straight into uh, policing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And how'd you find that transition? Not too bad. I mean, it's teamwork,
1: right? So it's mm-hmm. teamwork. And I mean, I was pretty fortunate because I graduated reasonably early so I took a ton of sociology psychology classes kind of as the prep getting ready and uh, including work so it's just something that kind of was really a place where I mean if you think about it now that's one thing that's never changed is if you can't work within a team you probably can't be a cop right so uh, Mm -hmm. when you think about that I think I was prepared well for that with some of the circumstances I had and then some of the background that I had and some of the interests I had. So it it was kind of a natural fit for me, actually.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I find that team sports are a massive thing, especially for anybody coming in. If you've not played on a team sport or done, I guess, say, team activities, it doesn't have to be sports all the time, but um, that's a massive part of, I would say, even maybe what the recruiting side wants to look at and see what you've done in your past.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those things actually even today we're working at it. Is you know, sometimes that whole diversity that we're looking at, there's a lot of diversity in sport too, right? Mm -hmm. Some prepare individual and, you know, obviously you can take that to the arts and some of the other fields, but it's it's a lot of that prep and commitment work that you have to have. It's a lot of things that you have to realize that you work within an environment where your say is not the only say and you need to make sure that, uh, you know, what you're doing is kind of in line with where we need to go to as an organization. So there is absolutely 100% of those things that actually cross over for sure.
0: Um, so when you're applying to the
1: policing, what year was that? Oh, God, now you're going to, but I think it was 80, 86 that I started. Yeah, so. And did you apply uh, to multiple serves or just PA? Just one, just one. It was one of those things uh, where they were running a, th- uh, you know, a physical and, through my application because it was something I was interested uh, in doing. Um, and as I said, I took time off to go to pro camp, but uh, it was never looked back. I mean, I did well in recruit college, did, uh, you know, would manage to get a, well, a few awards out of that. And uh, it's always something that I wanted to uh, enjoy right from the start. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you're out there and it's like anything else in this work, even today, although. I think it's much more challenging for our officers today because you don't have to deal with some of the, some of the rhetoric and some of the noise that uh, you, that you have today that you didn't back then. But uh, it was always something where you could actually kind of chart your own path. You know, yeah. there were so many different things in policing that you could go into, and you could have a career within a career type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's some of the things that I still uh, look fondly back at. Some of those great jobs you had within policing.
0: Yeah. Well, so can you talk a bit about going through policing? in the eighties and maybe some of the big differences, if you can see some big difference between then and now.
1: Yeah, I'd say a
0: couple of the bigger
1: differences is technology. Like uh, back there, when you look at it, back in policing, uh, a lot of those things that you had, the hunch, the instinct and stuff that you reacted on and, and acted on was a lot of where you got success and not everybody had some of that stuff. I think now looking at what we have access to data and technology and the ability to do things quicker i think is 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 game changing for sure um then you look at some of the the tools that we had back then versus now right uh, mm-hmm. you know look at the old cars versus what we have for cars now and and everything associated with that and that's just because we need to because you know the evolution of criminal activity doesn't follow any rules or any boundaries so we have to be able to respond we have to be able to get the new and uh modern technology modern expertise different things of training uh that we need now that we press probably didn't need back then and but i think it's all it's like anything else right is we always say that uh we don't have enough of something, we, we, we say we need change, but when you change it, then we complain that we don't need change, right? Yeah. But that's that's any industry, that's any business, that's any profession. And I think, though, just looking at that, and I see a picture behind you, just mm-hmm. looking what police looked like back then to what they look like now and, uh, you know, the evolution. Like, I, in a smaller police service you know, got to the point where we had to build a tag team and, you know, expand our canine and expand some of those resources and you have to train your investigative skills. But at the other side of that, what we realize now is that if it's just an enforcement priority, that the pool never changes. It's just more and more people coming in. So I think we're in a much more educated state now to actually, uh, that we were back then. We have a lot more, um, people that bring a lot of skill sets to the table in recruiting that they didn't back then mm-hmm. and i think that's a real asset that we have that we can need to continue to to build out
0: so uh, well even on the technology front i'd say you know uh, i don't think humans have really evolved so there's almost a point where it's too much technology and it always seems to fail when you need it most so you're always running some plate in the car when you're trying to stop somebody and only half of the information you're looking for comes back and you're trying to watch and make sure they're not jumping out of their car and doing something crazy too. And, um, yeah, it's almost, it gets to a point where it's like, it's overwhelming the amount of stuff you can get.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's weird to say that because, you know, just having got back here last late last night from speaking at that conference in Vegas, which is the CES conference. And we spoke at the You know, the one with the GBF, which is the government forum, which is the edge forum, which is a lot of homeland security and just seeing how it's evolving and the evolution and democratization of data and where that's actually going and thinking of, oh, man, how do we need to keep up with that or get prepared for that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's actually a bit intimidating and I, I think what it really tells us, though, to your point is... There's still going to be subject matter. You're still going to need human beings because somebody's got to interpret that. you got to interpret it the right way. It's just going to change the way that we look at things, the way we train. The good thing is, unlike me where I had to learn it, we've got a lot of people growing up with it right now. So that's going to help. uh, But at the same time, we can't uh, forget about that large part of our police service that, you know, We have to work towards you know, giving it at a pace which is manageable and scalable. And and I think that's always going to be a challenge in our profession right now. Just looking at what we were faced with in COVID-19 and how we had to pivot and how we had to evolve and some of the things that we did tells you uh, that it can be done, but you also got to do it at the pace that people can actually maneuver and, and, Mm -hmm. and handle it at. And I think that's one of the things that... You know, as we go back now, since all the exercises we went through the MT police service, we need to tweak and evaluate what's ones of those things that have maybe not has been beneficial would have and 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 we need to do it. So that the point to you there is we always got to continue to look back and make sure that it's for the right reasons.
0: Yeah. And we'll definitely get
1: into the the consumer electronic thing because uh like I was
0: saying, just before we fired up here, uh I saw it on LinkedIn that you were there and I didn't know police services even went to those things. I thought it was just like for video games and then the new Roomba
1: that's going to yeah.
0: get all of your dirt. <laughs>
1: so they have got a little bit of everything there. E- yeah. Flying cars to everything else. It's yeah. crazy stuff. Yep.
0: Um, So when you're in, uh, Prince Albert yep. and you're kind of going through your career there, cause you spent 26 years there, nine of which was as the chief. So that must've been just blasting through the ranks to get up there. Is there, is there much in the way of structure there for, uh, ranks?
1: Yeah, no, smaller it's, service. Uh, it's smaller service, but it's, you know, back then when I started constable, corporal, sergeant, staff sergeant, inspector, uh, we didn't have superintendents because we weren't uh, large enough, but then you mm. had a chief and then eventually there was deputy chiefs created it, et cetera. And I created those. So it was an interesting um, path that I took uh, in relation to how I came up through the ranks quickly and you know and it's amazing because i know you're on the association and some of my best training actually came on the association i mm-hmm. was uh, president of our police association probably for nine years uh or more including nine years as the chief after that so uh and then you know served as a canadian director and i was the president of the uh, of the SASFED, which is the provincial uh, police association as well i heard the first executive director for our association back then too so the You learned a lot about relationships and people and skill sets. And I was pretty fortunate over nine years uh, uh, to, uh, you know, as a police chief to to never have a grievance. Can you imagine that? If we could do that here, good luck. (laughs) But but Yeah, Yeah. no, but because it's relationships, it's people. But I'm going to go back to the story how I jumped from an inspector to a police chief uh, overnight. And uh, we had an issue... Um, uh, and again, thankfully I had some of this, why I started with the training, the police fishing, I had some of the experience on this. We had a mayor, uh, that was pulled over for impaired driving by one of our recruits with less than uh, six months on the job. And the mayor was a former cabinet minister, uh, in government. And and then the story starts and, uh, long story short, I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of it because it's all done with now, but, uh wake up one night with a call from my police commission saying, hey, where were you at uh, about an hour and a half ago? And I said, well, I was sleeping. What the hell is going on? Yeah. And well, I can't talk about this on the phone. I had to go into the city hall. Long story short, you know, mayor got to pick up for driving. One of the folks from our service took him up to the chief's house. And unfortunately, the chief was a really good guy. He was a mentor of mine. John Quinn, from Saskatoon Police Service, was one of my mentors. Uh, you know, obviously, unfortunately, this all led to a lot of careers being lost. Mm. And, you know, uh, a lot of things. I think we actually spent $750,000 on an impaired driving case because that's how sensitive it was. And, uh, long story short, this took transpired for over a year and a half, pretty much. Uh, a year and a half of my life, I'll never get back together, but I mm-hmm. get back, I should say. But, you know, I, I heard early on, got some good legal counsel uh, advice. Some of the pre- people that I belonged to, Entrepreneurs International at the time, out of Saskatoon, gave me some advice as well as, <clears throat> you know, when you're in a pickle, don't get a hamburger lawyer, get a good pickle lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lawyered up. We had uh, ethical advice from Ontario. <coughs> we had columns hired from the Calgary Police Service. Wow. Long story short, as I said, there was careers lost, but... Uh, it's kind of one of those things that didn't ask for. It, it just happened because mm. within 24 hours, I went from an inspector to the active chief uh, for the next year and
0: plus. So um, as you kind of wrap up your career there, what would you say is some of the most memorable stuff from uh, Prince Albert? So it's a little different than
1: maybe the big city policing. Yeah. You know, I, I think it was there. Um, well, first of all, on the job, I, I was pretty fortunate to go through and, I had a lot of different training, and some of the training that I got that was very useful for me was communications training. Mm -hmm. I had quite a bit of it, both through the association and through the police service. Actually, I went into comms, and then, of course, I was in CFSU, which is like the JFU, which is like alert now, for the province as well. So I think some of those partnerships and working across systems was very good as well. But I think as you got to the chief of police, because it was smaller, I didn't have people to do things for. Like I have mm-hmm. here And I don't mean do things for me, but you Just had others. Yeah, the support. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Where there you had to learn it all. And you had to learn it from the ground up. So I think it was a great uh stepping stone for me to ground me on what it needed, not to forget about where you came from. And then also allowed me to transition into a significantly larger job, which probably is even a little bit bigger than this one in a lot of contexts, of working in a government, you know, where you're in charge of policing and corrections and transformational change and a few other things so i think it really gave me a good solid foundation and base but by far the thing that i remember most there's the people
0: yeah okay so on that um i just want to ask about your time serving for the province um so what was that job like compared to the policing side of things especially as a chief of police imagine it was pretty political
1: at both spots Yeah, well, I mean, both those jobs are political, you're right. I think the thing there, though, is you actually looked at it from a policy in a larger process issue, so it really taught you of what feeds the system and maybe where you need to focus. It was a lot easier to do things quicker as a chief than it was as a deputy minister in government, even with some significant ability to create change, and that's just because the number of approvals you need. But what it also allowed you to do is look at the other ministries, health, social service, education, including the economy and everything else, and how things are related to each other. Mm. And it really started to open my eyes to the position of policing. I always use the analogy when I speak is we have two, uh, uh, basically, uh, perspectives that we can operate as a chief of police. One is the, the voice of influence. And what is the voice of authority? Well, authority comes in law, and we know what that is as a cop. We know we're in law, and we know lawful placement and everything else and what we can act on. But the one we don't use <clears throat> is the voice of authority, which we need some of those partners out there that we actually can rely on and work with and set uh, mutual goals and objectives because if we're going to take stuff out of the system, we need them. We can't successfully do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been tried over and over and over, and you can't do it unless you do that. So you got to know how that works. Some of those things that we did you know, early on was the, the money in the system. <clears throat> Again, knowing how that all works in government, very helpful. Yeah. And it's to, to find people. So I think what it really did is took me to a 30, 40, 50,000 foot level of understanding how everything works, right? From making decisions on changing to the Police Act to making decisions on you know, what how corrections impact. You know, one of the things that, <clears throat> just as an example that I took away is we were looking at overtime and corrections, and we hired uh, a group. Well, first of all, we hired a group, uh, a company. I will get the name, but we hired a, you know, a, basically an accounting firm, which there's several of them. So they come in to look at overtime, and they said, "Well, if you change your shift pattern to this, you could probably reduce your overtime by X." And you know that stuff we already knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so hired a mathematician and economist in our ministry and like that, I did a couple other different aspects. And they basically told us, and numbers might not be quite right, but they're close. If we let 11% of people out of jail, we could probably expect 5% reduction of crime. If you let people out of jail, you expect crime to go down. Correct. Okay. And now here's the question is, you got to let the right ones out. But the whole point (laughs) of this was, is when we put the low risk and the high risk in jail, Mm -hmm. they all become high-risk. It's Mm -hmm. like an educational, Mm -hmm. which we all know, right? It's common sense when you break it down and, you know, reverse-engineer it. It got me thinking, as police officers, who better to make the judgment call with the right training on if a person is struggling with addiction and the justice system's not going to help them versus somebody that's selling the drugs or hurting people for no apparent reason is that intake into the justice system is such a critical point. Which we hold a lot of ability. For instance, if you think of policing in context, uh, if we don't lay a criminal charge, you know, in essence, the justice system doesn't exist. Judges and mm-hmm. prosecutors aren't needed, or you know, because there's no criminal activity. From the criminal perspective, we know that'll never happen. But what it does tell us that <clears throat> if we're really going to have the biggest impact on crime, we have to make sure we put the right people in the justice system. And back to what we were talking about. Knowing now how to build those partnerships through accountability with the other agencies to take stuff out of the system mm-hmm. to make our job easier is absolutely critical. Because if you think policing and you studied enough, there's the calls for service and there's the crime. And the calls for service, a lot of it's antisocial behavior. It, I mean, the, the portions and the percentages of people in the city are trying to use. I'm not sure where they get some of these numbers. They just take what they want and want to make it yeah. ri- but. When we put the partnerships together, like PAC, help, you know, what we're doing on diversion now, what we're doing on uh, some of the navigators and stuff, that's only to take that intake out of the system. We still have to be equally as hard on the guns and everything else on the other side. So if we actually can hit that on both sides, Mm -hmm. we in essence can make one plus one equal three. I wouldn't have known that till I was actually in that government position to actually see it and understand it. At it, I believe, from my perspective, at a different level. And it's kind of weird now, having had that job. When you get, in, in order, to some of your stuff you put out, which, I, by the way, I think is very good. Good for you for taking it on. Is when you start to see it in different ways, it it, it helps you. It kind of humors me to a certain. Uh, degree where people are coming and saying they, you can't do this and can't do this. Well, that's the stuff we used to, like I mm-hmm. went past that stuff. Yeah. So it just gives you a better understanding. I think it uh, corrections really opened my eye to what the infliction point and what the relationship was and some of the intelligence-led stuff that you can take in relation to that. And then I think the other piece that I've really learned the most from that is and I always use this analogy and it's probably not the right one, but it's not hard on crime, which is arrest, and incarcerate, or, you know, lack of better words. It's not soft on crime, hugs, and second chances. It's smart on community safety and well-being. We have to do both of those at the same time. Mm-hmm. And when meth is involved, it's not safe to send somebody else. So if you send a team approach together and, uh, you know, if it's not a safety issue, then the partner of another agency could lead. When it's safety, we lead, but the reality is that other agency, it needs to have a role in that uh, relentless outreach after to take yeah. stuff out of the system.
0: Yeah, and police aren't the
1: end-all be-all,
0: you know, we we don't, like, I, I've been in patrol and doing what I do now, working in the gang stuff. Um, you just see that, like, we have certain functions we can really fill, and then there's other ones that it's like, hey, have at her, we need other people helping out. It's not all about policing at the end of the day. Um, it's just funny how out of all the the narratives out there, we become the only punching bag in a lot of respects, but nobody else seems to take any of that on.
1: Yeah, no, but I think you gotta think of that why. Uh, I mean, there's a, you know, concentrated effort, right, and it's it hasn't worked, as you said, in North America for folks, certain folks that maybe don't have the right intentions to destabilize them. Where do you need to destabilize? You need to destabilize the police, so, don't mm-hmm. take it lightly on those that actually uh, try to do that. <clears throat> I think what we also got to continue to do, though, is remain professional and not get caught up on that. Because I can tell you, being involved in major city chiefs, I just uh, uh, spoke twice here in the last four or five months. Uh, that defund the police, detest the police, whatever uh, that people want to put it. It hasn't worked. It's been a disaster. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by disaster is... Take Edmonton Police Service. We were transforming our police service before COVID, before George Floyd. It doesn't mean that we were doing everything bad. We were doing a lot of things really well. We are just tweaking, yeah. to your point, the areas that we need to get better at, which is really what a lot of the activism has tried to get us to do, but we've been doing that for years. The point is, is when you just actually change and do it, based on social media or without knowledge or mm-hmm. just because you maybe disagree and had a bad experience. You get to the places like Minneapolis where, you know, the, the chief there just spoke at, at one of the conferences. I think it's, you know, their homicides have, I, I believe it was tripled, violence is quadrupled. They're 800 police officers short yes. and they had less than hundred applications. Like mm-hmm. that's a problem, Houston. Like, mm-hmm. And if you think of it right now from what we've we been taking into Edmonton, what is it driven? Well, you know, there's politicization of policing was and and officer wellness were our two key risk factors that were looked at. And I mean, people will say, Well, what does that mean? Well, politicization of policing is when you start to get into the operational lines of policing and you're trying to change that without a knowledge base, you're really putting police in a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Officer Wellness taking the blood of that criticism all the time. When you see the incidence of mental health go up, a lot of that has a relationship with what they've been seeing for the last two and a half years. And if you see it and all that, it hasn't just been us because the pandemic has also put this on the nurses. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing recruiting shortages in nursing. You're seeing recruiting shortages now. We went from 1,200 a few years back to, to 400 we're still filling our classes, but you see we have to get ahead of that. And then you look at EMS, which we're now in a worse position, and you've got you know roughly 10% of your workforce off because of uh, injuries above the shoulder. We need to be looking at that. And I think uh, your point earlier is the negativity that's been created on social media doesn't represent the mainstream population and you know some of the things mm-hmm. that we've been through surveys and stuff. We have to be aware of it. We certainly have to be cognizant of it. But we also, uh, unfortunately, sometimes as well it's human nature, we almost need to shut our social media off once in a while.
0: Um, there's two points uh, or two questions I'm going to ask on that. The, these surveys, and there's an article I have here that uh, is talking about surveys. And where are these surveys sent? I live in Edmonton. I've never got a survey. Yeah. <laughs> Why do I never get a survey about policing?
1: Like, yeah. No, <laughs> it, it's a good question because it's, it's done from different, aspects i mean we do our own uh which you know this this last couple of years has actually been good and we got some things that came out of ottawa which we kind of partnered and they actually do surveys and some of the people looking at it from a demographic perspective say the people that sometimes we police and you know where we used to do some of our own surveys i don't think that's the best what we really are trying to do as police is we're trying to be better each day and but then others will do a survey or they'll do some things. And I mean, the, the best one that I can think of is when they took school resource officers out of schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we still, the Catholic uh, Board of Education obviously did a study on that. Less than 5% of the people want to take uh, the officers out of school. But there was a, pe- a portion of people that said we need to change the of our school uh, liaison on uh, how we do that program. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. We always want to evolve and we want to change. But when we frame the question from a negative and we try to make it a negative where there's no win, you know, saying that it's not right to have officers in school, well, you're never gonna to get to the outcome. So yeah. one thing I learned, and this goes back to the justice portfolio too, is the question sometimes is more important than the answer. And if you have the predetermined question to fit your needs, well, it's not always that helpful. So You're not that, starting from a, a common ground of right. any sort.
0: So where do we even start the conversation really?
1: Right. And I and I think though for us you know my job as as the chief of police is the chief of police is to try to keep that out of the front lines like you know as i try to say every each and every day is you know we're not going to lose jobs because right now the evidence police service can't afford to lose jobs mm-hmm. you know we still back and you look at budget and some of the things that we've actually had to do uh you know uh repurposing positions in you know the unfortunate circumstances just using this as an example of Chinatown where people two people lost their lives mm-hmm. and the reality is that was in our budget request to build that area out for a more of a visible presence invisible presence does work and we know it works uh, as well as the LRT as well as uh, 118th and as well as downtown well that's what we're trying to do now but because the decisions, uh, we're 18 months behind, because as you know, you don't, uh, you are recruited just like I was and mm-hmm. it doesn't happen overnight. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a process. Yeah. And uh, when you start to see people leaving the profession, both at a age where they can retire because they obviously have enough years and don't want to do this anymore, which sometimes, they, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. And you're using, losing people that grew up in COVID and just say, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. This is much more t- too negative yeah that becomes a bit of a problem so we need to get ahead of that Uh, i think we you know our comm strategy we've changed it uh i think we're getting better i don't think we're there yet but i think we're getting better and but at the same time is we need to keep an eye on our officer wellness
0: uh and kind of on this along the same lines of putting messages out there does do the police services need to talk to the media outlets like ctv or the journal or any of those why doesn't the police just have its own media department, put everything out in full context? And if people want, you know, they're going to clip your messages and take two lines out of it anyways. Why doesn't the police service ever look at something like, we will put out our own message. And if you want to link to the video, go ahead. But at least the full five minutes is there or 30 minutes, whatever it is. You know, that's still a relationship there. But do we need to... worry so much about being at their mercy
1: no it's a balance and and i you know i I think if you look at the rodney king in la la up creating their own la police service created their own tv station but then there was people saying well they're only creating their own propaganda right Mm -hmm. so it's a balance what i would say though is uh what we in my opinion and again that's my opinion is we've lost the sense of truth and that used to be our mainstream media. Because mainstream media is like anything else right now. It's trying to compete with social media. Yeah. And when you start to compete with social media, there are two different things. Like mainstream media, incredible. You know, what in the day was a, you know, and, and I think there's still lots of good uh, journalists and lots of good reporters. So I don't want to do this. It's just like they would criticize us. Some police officers are better than others. But that source of truth is critical to the safety and the well-being of communities. And when that source of truth, and I'll and give you an example, one of my uh, community, chiefs community councils, I asked them, okay, if something you're uh, from a safety perspective, um, where do you go for your sense of truth? Mm-hmm. And a couple of them, you know, you know, obviously the, the age generation is 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 different because that's what you want on a community council is to make sure you have different variations. Some of them said, well, we go to this reporter, this anchor that's been around for years, and then. You and know, that's it. And then some of them said, <laughs> some of them said they go to our website, they scrape some information. But, you know, the bulk of the younger was, we go to Twitter. If it's trending on Twitter, it seems like there's be something there we validated on Reddit and there you go. That Houston's a bit of a problem. Yeah, And <clears throat> that's what we're dealing with. And that's what we just learned when we were actually in CES. Uh, when we were in, and how that's actually impacting uh, some of the differences around the world, when you look at how China is excelling and North America is kind of decelling, if you want to say, in certain aspects, and a lot of that is just how things are getting spun, and mm-hmm. we're losing that source of truth and or sense of truth. And I think that's something we really got to work on, trying to figure out what the right way is uh, to actually get that sense of truth back, because that's critical to wellness and it's critical to safety in our communities. And when you can get just get somebody that takes, because they have X amount of followers on Twitter and if they're, or wherever, it's not just Twitter, but if so, let's just use social media. And if they're trying to always be the critic and sometimes they don't have facts and they're just throwing stuff out there, um, it's showing that when you're saying it enough, it's actually having an impact on people. Yeah. And uh, so we're going to have to figure out how we, as, as as the guardians of safety and well-being in our community... I can communicate uh, more effectively, more in real time, which I think we're getting better. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, uh, you know, making sure that we stick to message and we're not trying to debate somebody and give them credibility on social media.
0: Well, I think at some point there's got to be, you know, um, whether it's counsel or media types or experts or whoever, at some point they have to put some trust in the police. So they can come out and run through scenarios, like use of force scenarios. And if they don't like the way that goes, they can just say, oh, well, you set that up so it's some crazy scenario. Well, you know, okay, but we're not saying we're the gospel truth. Go ask a cop, some random cop you see on the street then and ask them for their, you know, a candid opinion. Um, there has to be some truth in media too. And one of the biggest things I saw on this job was uh, being deployed to Ottawa for the convoy. Mm-hmm. And everything on the news that I saw uh, was it's all white supremacists and Like backwoods hillbillies out there. And when I got there, it was a very multicultural crowd. Mm -hmm. Easily 50% of people in there were some different uh, race or ethnic group. It wasn't just white people, and there were flags of all different countries and uh, different groups. But when you look at the messaging in the media, like you're saying, um, we don't even have to go to another country to look at influence. But even within North America, just who's funding these groups? Who's, you know, kind of getting the spin out there? Who has influence in what areas? Um, and that's not conspiracy theory. This is like, you can look this stuff up. There's lots of influence everywhere. So it's
1: quite a crazy world. It, it, it <laughs> is. And it's something that is going to become more and more at risk. And certainly it's, it's organized. And I think at the end of the day, like when you look at Edmonton, for instance, we went from what, three and a half years ago when you get on this unit. So you understand it. But we have 170 protest, 170 protests. I think last year mm-hmm. we had 507. Yes, yeah. Like <laughs> we've got protests and stuff that I've never heard of, mm-hmm. uh, and that's okay. Protests legally, lawfully, respectfully, and peacefully are good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's unfortunately when you get a convoy come through, and we saw what happened when we had to send people like yourself to Ottawa. Is when you lose the process and you let that set up it becomes a destabilization thing and then that's where you get again public really starting to outcry and i think you know a lot of criticism was on our folks, on our folks and our dops folks and certainly us when we we did those uh convoys here and you know certainly we apologize for the inconvenience of the horn and and some people that had to put up with that the horn blowing but the fact that our guys men and women kept these convoy trucks Mm -hmm. and i think the first one had 9,500 vehicles keep them moving and as the numbers uh, dwindled somewhat every week we would step up the enforcement just because it was easier and more effective i think is a a lot of lessons that we did a a lot of good things now could we have changed some things anytime you're using an unprecedented situation there's always going to be things changing and and we as you know look at those all the time but proud on how we've handled 507 protests uh, as a police service, and including one unprecedented one, it wasn't a protest, but a visit from the Pope, Mm -hmm. uh, which, I mean, you saw several police services in here working together, thousands of people, uh, you know, basically without a flaw. Yeah. That tells you the degree of preparation and professionalism that our members take in this, and I I think people need to hear that. This isn't something we take lightly. But when risk is... uh, you know, whether we get it through social media where two groups are going to clash, we're going to step in. And our goal is not hopefully to put them all in jail. It's to keep them apart and move on. And uh, and that's something I think we've had a lot of success in. And it's due to the men and women that we have and the training that we have. Um, so I maybe got you for another half an hour or so. Um,
0: I want to talk about recruiting retention because it's a big thing that keeps coming up in media. Um but also one, of, one thing I've heard lately, and this is just like when I see members out on the street and they say to people, like someone will say, hey, I'm interested in applying. and say it's a, just a white male. There's a lot of, I don't know if it's um, misconceptions, but with the current direction of the uh, equity diversity and recruiting and the big push for that, like that's what posters are geared toward, um, news is geared toward, sometimes white males might feel like they're kind of ostracized. And it got me thinking about, well, who would be the biggest base that we would recruit from? Because the majority of the population might be white people. So do you think maybe with the current narratives out there and the current recruiting strategies that maybe we've kind of somewhat ostracized
1: a bit of the, the like the biggest pool that we could potentially recruit from? I don't think so. And I, I tell you why. <clears throat> and, and I think, uh, you know, more and more people in our service are recognizing this. Like diversity is by definition of the Edmonton police service is not just race, not just gender, but thinking mm-hmm. and uh, which thinking is also experiences. So it's, it's what are we going to keep adding that like diversity is a good thing for us because we, uh, we police a very diverse city in many aspects. And when you think of it, you know, adding languages you know we're adding you know different perspectives to your point sports i think one of the things that we maybe could do a little better is we defer a lot of people uh -hmm. and like a ton and i just i'm learning about this you know a couple years past or over the last year is and sometimes it's to your point you mentioned a sports team well they don't have job experience well, or it's perhaps this and they didn't do that. or mm-hmm. And I think we have the ability to try to fill some of that in rather than send them to security jobs, which we do a lot of times. I think we have the ability to design and build our own, if you want to say farm team, yeah, because okay. you, you're a sports guy and you get sports, yeah. but we need to get ahead of recruiting. You know what I mean? We can't always be trying to fill a next class the day when the other class is done recruiting we need to get that system in place where we develop these people to your point regardless of race ethnicity gender thinking we want all people that are interested if they meet the requirements and i mean obviously there's legal requirements there's eyesight there's a lot of physical requirements that we require but when they meet these why are we sending them somewhere else when we could actually start to develop some of this and, and maybe and we run start them through smoking. the whole recruiting again well right. or, or maybe they get a base training and this is just thinking outside the box maybe mm-hmm. that first seven weeks is training is standard you get the stuff that we need the the trauma not the not the firearm not that stuff but a lot of those basic needs that we need right now and mm-hmm. policing um, so we just got to look at it differently that's that's the whole point of this and uh it's not to, it's not to turn people away. Uh, I think what we got to make sure is we're trying to ensure that we keep diversity in the forefront, but diversity comes in four or five bundles. And yeah. that doesn't discriminate against anybody.
0: Okay. Um, and you know what that kind of gets me thinking about like uh, the cadet program. I think Winnipeg runs cadets. There's a few others. I
1: I is, so back when I was in the government, Saskatchewan, we did a white paper. One of the fellows that works for us right now is actually was the, was the lead on it. Uh, and it was basically low risk to harm high priority policing. And so, you know, a lot of the things that we don't get to, and uh, that's a good breeding ground and, 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 and learning ground for us. And, you know. So if we can get into something like that, to your point, like the Winnipeg, like there was one in Alaska, RCMP had some of it, Um, you know, there's so many different ways that we can look at this that I just don't think we're there yet. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's, it's time to start looking because if you look in the U.S., we're still filling our classes here, although we don't have as many applicants in the U.S., they're not filling their classes. Yeah, in a lot of cities, they're shutting down some of these right. services. Right, so oh. we got to make sure that we don't let that get here because that's hard to recover from. And and how that transpires in a community is some of those areas that they had good relationships, strong. They just didn't have the manpower, or the, you know, the the people power, as is, is the better word, to go into there. Uh, they've lost some of those communities, and we can't do that. Like we have to, you know, I feel so bad every time I go on uh, and I, uh, Chief of Staff Dreichel and I, we take regular tours now of some of the things that are going on in Chinatown, uh, you know, almost on a weekly basis sometimes. And those people are struggling. The mm-hmm. people that are trying to run a business there, the people that live in that area are struggling and we need to help them just like our downtown. And I mean, until we get some facilities and the ability to take people some places and build a system, uh, we just look at these one-off things and we say that's the answer and uh i think we have to play a role of adding our voice into the system which we have been with the province this new task force on this action committee of doing some of these things there's a lot of potential promising things that could come our way in the next few months uh on the safety and well-being aspect that have a direct impact positive impact on us and so we need to be able to make sure we have people to fill some of those jobs Mm -hmm. um Maybe on that, we'll kind of move on to some stuff
0: about the Police Act, uh, some of the amendments coming up. And one of the points in there that kind of struck me was uh, uh, the key change point here where it says uh, it requires police to develop community safety plans and report annually on their progress. When I read that, um, that kind of surprised me. I thought, you know, well, maybe it's just out of ignorance, but. Wouldn't the city come up with the community safety plan and then the police are just one department in like dozens of people that need to kind of uh, attack a plan? And then on that, it just got me thinking like all the stuff going on between uh, the mayor and the province. And, you know, when we drive around and are doing our job and we're out in the suburbs, I've never seen so many people in the 10 years I've been in Edmonton standing on street corners asking for money. Like it's expanded completely all over the city. Catalytic converters getting cut off. They used to kind of be like a core thing, maybe out into the neighborhoods. That's everywhere now. It it seems like a lot of things are kind of
1: getting worse. So why is it up to the police to come up with this safety plan? So, So community safety plans is actually in legislation in Ontario. And I think probably when they looked at this as some of the things there, and what that actually did is give the authority from justice to be one of the people that are centric to the plan. It doesn't mean it's just a police plan, it's a community safety plan, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's it's like anything, it's like that whole analogy. If if police aren't involved in your community safety plan or, you know, somewhere yeah. in this closer to the centre, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that's a bad thing. I think some of the ways that these things get rolled out and how we look at implementation are going to be the thing. But, you know, the majority of the Police Act changes that came before the majority, the things that we've been asking for years ago, not just from the police chiefs and the police associations you know the ability for independent oversight fair enough bring it on that's great you know mm-hmm. the ability uh you know everybody's asked the question about people have province have a role in police commissions well they do in most other provinces i think except two or three um these are all not bad things though what's really not clear yet is because it's new is the is the implementation but this police act is Uh, been reviewed by both governments in this province and they've both been started under one government and it's finished now in a large part it's what everybody's been asking for but the part that it's more of a problem is not sure why some people are trying to use it as a political uh, mechanism Mm. because you do need the oversight body which is your government regardless of what stripe they wear to play a role in modernizing policing. So from what I've seen, and again, I do have questions on what it looks like on implementation and regs type thing, uh, but for the big structure changes, I don't see any red, real bad red flags there. I think mm-hmm. it actually starting to bring some accountability to the process and some independence, uh, which right now, as you mentioned a couple of times, is independence uh, of policing is is no less important than independence of the judicial. Yeah. Uh because you have to have the ability to have independence. Uh because if you're starting to see people trying to influence where an investigation goes, that's a dangerous slope and uh I think it's something that this actually starts to get a little bit more accountability into.
0: Yeah, and you know what with um like you see with the RCMP out on the East Coast and all the questions surrounding that, are they really just an extension of the federal government or are they independent? You've read well. <laughs> so I try to read. My Feel like my eyes are blown up out of my head <laughs> half the time trying to get prepared for these things um one of the things i want to touch on though was just about that independence uh of the re- reviews of like police conduct and stuff so there's i know there's lots of concern from frontline members who's going to be on this committee do they actually understand policing at all do they know what use of force is because the experts we see in the media right now i don't think quite get that so
1: Like, who's going to be on these? Well, I mean, I I think right now I look at it very much like, uh, you know, this is basically scaling out the ACERT model, right? Now, the Mm -hmm. bigger concern for me is making sure you staff it. Because otherwise, Mm -hmm. the, the biggest problem we have is the timeliness. I mean, let's face it, you're going to have to have, the investigator's going to have to have some knowledge of policing. I mean, it doesn't make sense if they don't have knowledge of policing. So I think, you know, that particular model has actually worked quite well. I think it's gotten a lot better since, uh, you know, they have put some new funding and got some more bodies in there. It's, even though we're not there yet because there's such a backlog, so that's good. In relation to a governance, uh, I think the one you're referring to is some of our smaller communities. What's well, really kind of the role of our police commission? Yeah. Um, so... That governance model, you know, which is kind of the bridge between politics, um, you know, whether it's between uh, the council or in this case could be the province and the community, you need that bridge. You need that mechanism that's, uh, I wouldn't say apolitical because there are some political appointments to it, but you, you need to keep that. Uh, degree of independence in there to ensure that a police service can do what they need to do on a safety and well-being perspective, including, uh, you know, when you get into things like budget and what is the need uh, versus the want. Because I think when you talk need and you look at what's going on in your community, as you said, you've got a lot of homeless, you've got violence, you're taking guns and a lot of vehicles right now on a daily basis. Yeah. You've got, you know, the shootings, you know, we're concerned and some of the patterns that we're seeing in relation to that we got to tackle all those. And, you know, so if you look at it and you break down a lot of the vulnerable population that you're seeing is in that displacement. Well, that displacement takes place partially because when we actually have to move resources from the outside into the core, yeah, they're going to displace them. Yeah. So if we would have did it like we did is where we built the outside, this was the plan, build the outside strong and then go to the core, which is your last step. Then at least you have the resources everywhere to deal with it on the connection Pro. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is, you know, in this community is, <clears throat> there's not a real good understanding of where all these people are from because they're not all from Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and and there's, you know, lots of things out there right now saying a lot of them aren't from here. Now, again, you've got correctional facilities that releases people. We've got a major hospital that here that people come into on a regular basis. And we need to make sure that there's steps that we're connected to, not leading, but connected to, to yes. actually reintegrate some of these people back to their home communities. And, and then the, from a government perspective, you can't solve, let's just use the word homeless, because this is one of the things that we're talking about in a city, unless you have a parallel or regionalized system in some of your feeder systems. And, and that's similar to crime patterns if we're doing crime, similar to hospital if you're looking at healthcare, care. You look at our feeder system. You know that could be some regionalized first nations. Certainly, with Task One is definitely there. Uh, you got Grand Prairie and you got a few others. That mm-hmm. you know, there's a natural path. You got to tackle it as a system. There is no system here right now. I, I, I just I don't know if I could stress that enough. We're getting there. I think mm-hmm. the province is doing some really good stuff. Mental health addictions file, but it still needs some work. And we got to continue to add our voice to that conversation to get that system rather than thinking you're just going to change a piece of legislation and this all goes away. That doesn't work. Yeah,
0: that was one of my points on some of the other things we were talking about that I was going to say is like, we just, you hear a lot of like pie in the sky ideas, the big like, we're going to end homelessness. But how are you going to do that? How do you implement it? How are you going to measure it? Like, what are the concrete details? What's the data? Um, Yes, it's just some of the ideas I find are like
1: very aloof, and they're well, nice I mean, to say, but in reality, are they possible? It, well, I think it starts with focus on something to create some hope in the system. Mm-hmm. So, if if the if the idea is we want to get some success, it's not even with giving an example of EPS when it came in here, our crime rate third worst in the country, you know, for major cities, second or third it was not we talked about we want to be the best police service in Canada, and we measured eight key crime indicators that accounted for 15% of our crime. So we don't really have a lot of chance to be successful. So I remember still have a leadership team hanging out at the table of the list, and I said, okay, who are we going to catch? And I think Winnipeg at that time was number six. And we said, oh, Winnipeg. You know, The reality is they were ahead of us in a lot of things in relation to the crime reduction. We adjusted that and it it goes down to set. And we said, we're going to reduce crime by 20%. And people said, you're crazy. We can't do that. Three years we did that. Mm -hmm. And then we had, and this is the big discussion where we weren't allowed to go with our budget. Say, well, we never defunded the police. No, we had an approved budget before I got here and it got reduced. Yeah. Whatever you want to say, increase, it got reduced from what the approval was. And that didn't allow us to go to that next phase, and as a result, this year our crime is going to go back up, mm-hmm. because what we do, as we, as you said, we push resources what we needed to do into an area, and all of a sudden it just scattered. I always said community safety is an investment; it's not cheap for police. And the reality is, is if we're going to get better, we actually have to build our partnerships, and we got to build them with the people that will measure with us.
0: One of the things I want to make sure I touched on, and then this pretty much bring us to the end of the time is, uh, the federal firearms, uh, buyback or gun grab. I don't know, depending what camp you fall in, we'll call it something, but can you talk a bit about that and how, like how these asks have been made maybe to the municipal services? Cause when I had the CFO in, uh, Terry talked a bit about that as well, saying that letters have been going out and, and asking people, but you know, there might not have been as much buy-in. And now we're seeing that we're, I think, it's like five provinces or like four provinces in one of the territories have kind of pushed back. I don't know where all the services are on that.
1: Yeah, so I, I gave evidence on this in a parliamentary committee. Um, and there's there's a couple things. There's there's going to be parts of it. This is not the buy program, but some of these changes in the law and some of the restrictions of the firearm, if it becomes a law and we have to act on it, we will have to look at that. We have some discretion, but we still have to act on the law buyback programs and policy. Mm. The reality is <clears throat> I personally, and certainly EPS's position is I don't think it's very helpful because it's, not, we're not focusing on the people pulling the triggers. You being in gangs, you know that it mm-hmm. takes a different individual to pull a trigger than it does to want a gun, mm-hmm. especially on another human being. And, <clears throat> you know, we're trying to build a gang reduction strategy, which has more investigative powers. Like we're not getting in my perspective, the place where we're doing non-fatal shootings enough. Because we're focusing on the fatal shootings. Mm -hmm. So you have to have an enforcement. These aren't people that are going to sell their guns or turn their guns in. Like, that doesn't make sense. It never has made sense. So we're trying to focus on the enforcement. The last thing we want to be is the wedge to take lawful guns off people that are lawful gun owners. Uh, And we tried to make that case uh, in relation to it. And The interesting process here has been that uh, the federal government seems to be reaching right into the cities. Uh, Mm. Not the police services, but the cities. Yeah. Uh, Which I'm not sure why. But Mm. at the end of the day, it's uh, something that we have to be cognizant of. But uh, I think for us, this isn't a program that we see as going to be Real beneficial to the ultimate goal of keeping communities safer, mm-hmm. certainly uh in our jurisdiction. And and certainly I think that would probably be shared in most of Western Canada.
0: Well, and even when there was the talk about um like almost having individual communities, uh what was it? I'm trying to think of the wording, but like licensing, you know, oh, this community can say you can't have these guns here and this one, you can't. I was like, that would be an absolute disaster. We were, you know, you look at policing alone and Just when you go from Edmonton into RCMP land, or if there's another service.
1: Check your handguns at the border. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that makes sense. And you're seeing this a lot of this tactic different for whatever reasons, but you're seeing the same thing in relation to safe supply of drugs in Vancouver versus how Alberta is dealing with the whole drug aspect from a recovery perspective. And there's going to be some interesting studies done here in the next few years because you know what seems like a lot of these things that aren't working we keep doubling down on versus yes. tweaking it just like we said when when we make change you know you got to tweak it if it's not working Houston yes you know it's uh you know and it, it, you uh, probably were too uh some indigenous background metis it's kind of like that old Indian wisdom you know uh, when you're riding a dead horse don't uh find a committee how to st- better ride a dead horse you know <laughs> find a new horse yeah and uh, I think sometimes that we Got to realize and, and be able to pivot when things aren't working.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, definitely hard for
1: government organizations to do that. It's a big but ship it, but, to but again, steer. that's back to my old job. It's not impossible, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the people that are actually living it out of the front line, we got to make sure they're connected to the decision. Yeah. And you know, most of that, regardless if they deal directly with the city, if the police don't have input, the police are going to be the ones dealing with it of it yeah and that is a problem that's a process problem where it seems like we have something we want to move on we go to the lowest common denominator the easiest way to get it done and we don't look at the people that impacts and that's certainly something that we're you know trying to get and i said back to your voice of influence versus authority that's exactly mm-hmm. what i'm talking about
0: um so at the end of our time here uh do you want to just is there anything that you think you want to Plug in there, say, "Hey, this is coming down the pipe." uh, You know, I I think that
1: I think I'm really looking forward to uh, the action committee on you know the mental health addictions file because I mean, let's face it, when we talk homelessness, we start talking problems. There's we still have a huge drug issue here, and you know, obviously, uh, a mental health issue that's growing exponentially too. And you know, a lot of that drug problem here is you know driving violence as well, and that's meth. But I think the the thing that I'd like to leave people with the impression, uh, or the, you know, my my last comments are is, I've been around a lot of police services, both as the CACP president and certainly back in the, the association days, and we have a really good police service. Uh, we've got a lot of dedicated men, and women, sworn and civilian that do a great job, and you know, our discipline complaints I think are less than one percent, and mm-hmm. that's what people focus on. And we all take discipline serious and certainly as Chief, I do too, but we're going to make some mistakes. We deal with a higher environment. And for us, we'll need to own our mistakes. And if we don't own our mistakes, then we'll have an accountability mechanism. But I want the citizens of Edmonton and certainly our police officers that are working uh, on a daily basis to know that this is a good police service and I have a lot of confidence. I'm still humbled as I was the day when I took the job to able the work with the great men and women we have. And you know what, I think people got to realize the majority of the public feels the same way and it's starting to come back. And, and let's not lose hope because if we lose hope, it's like anything else. We know where it goes. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, uh, the, the professionalism that we've uh, transpired during some time uh, challenging times in the last few years has been something that I'm proud of our people for.
0: Great. Well, we'll wrap it there. I want to say thanks for coming in and uh, we'll look to get you back in here and get an update. So, great. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Nathan.